welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, uh, pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. grateful to be here with you. I do want to say, um, before I begin sharing my story, if this is um, something that is hard for you to hear, if you're worried about a friend or family member who's experiencing something similar, perhaps, we do have resources available for you in the fellowship hall over here. Um, and Alyssa will be on stand there to pray and talk with you. Um, I'll come and check in as well um, with you all um, after the service. Um, I just recognize, I know how hard it is for me to hear, hear um communities talk about this, so I want to be sensitive to that. Um, this is the first time I've um, ever shared publicly about my story, um, but I think it's, it's really important. Um, in my 20s, I spent uh, seven years in an abusive marriage before I met Stephen, to be clear. <laughs> um, it took me until uh, the very last day of my first marriage to recognize it was abusive. Um, and it's uh, taken me an additional 10 years to understand that the trauma that I experienced in that relationship actually is sort of a textbook definition of domestic violence. Um, I want to say that victims do not stay in abusive relationships because they are foolish or weak. They stay because the consequences and the barriers of leaving are so high, and many times they don't realize um, that what they are dealing with is so unhealthy. Um, I am one of the lucky ones that managed to get out. Intimate partner violence can take many forms, physical, emotional, psychological, sexual, financial, and stalking. My abuser specialized in emotional, psychological, um, and sometimes financial and sexual abuses towards me. He was charming. He was a great, great-looking guy. Um, He's a godly guy. He was a youth pastor. Um, godly, so everyone thought. He was attentive. He was romantic. Um, and things started off really well um, in our relationships, so much so that by the end of our marriage, even when the abuse was really at its very, very worst, I was still convinced that this just wasn't the real him. I was just waiting for him to kind of get out of a tough spot. He was going through a hard time and acting out. And that I was just... Um, meant to be loyal and to persevere and to trust that my love for him and God's love for him would eventually help him return to his, um, his good self. And it took me a long time to recognize the abuse for what it was because um, in my case, my abuser never hit me. Um, sometimes he would throw things or break things, but it never put a bruise on my body. And as a result, the day that he walked out of our marriage, I still didn't see it. Um, one of my mentors and spiritual directors was, however, in the room with me as he berated me over the phone um, for being upset that he had moved out of our home without so much as a text or a note or a message. Um, and she thankfully grabbed me sort of by the shoulders and looked me straight in my eyes and she said, 
Heidi, how long are you going to let him abuse you like this? And I'm so grateful she did that. Um, I really felt almost like this physical sense of scales falling off of my eyes in that moment. And it was like I could see clearly for the first time in about a decade. And I thank God that she could see what I could not. And I have been um, sort of on a healing journey ever since. It has taken a lot of good therapy and good friends and community like this one. Uh, By the end of our marriage, I was very lost. The psychologically abusive tactics he was using was... um, had gotten just so bad that I was really losing touch with what was real and what wasn't. I just couldn't even trust my ability to make a decision. I didn't think I could interpret anything accurately. I worried I was losing my mind. I began fantasizing about killing myself. I believed everything was my fault, and I was consistently terrified of accidentally setting him off. So it took me 10 years to fully understand um, the damage that happened to me in my body, in my soul, and in my mind. And I've, in that time, learned how common domestic abuse, domestic violence is, and how easily it can be disguised or glossed over as spousal disagreements or a hard time. In March of 2018, just uh, six months after Central City launched, Um, Alyssa Graves preached a sermon on the Me Too movement, and at the end of that service, she invited anyone needing prayer to come to the front, and I found myself, even though I didn't really know Alyssa too well at that point, um, I found myself just crying uncontrollably. I I just couldn't stop, (laughs) and I wasn't really sure why. (laughs) I was recalling lots of things I had been through in my life that would count as you know, sexual harassment or abuse, but I really wasn't sure what was going on in my spirit. And what I've learned is that in that service in March and in many instances since, I've learned that I just carry a lot of gender-based trauma um, around in my body. And so when somebody talks about it in the open, um, especially in the context of church, I grew up in the church. It took me 30-plus years to hear a sermon on it in this church was the one that did it. And when somebody talks about it, I just, um, my eyes start overflowing as they're doing now, and I, I just can't seem to stop. Today, I am deeply, deeply disturbed and concerned about the spiritual language I hear so often, which is used to justify and normalize abuse, which demeans and denigrates women as less capable, worthy, or intelligent, which shames partners who leave abusers and which convinces victims to forgive and return to abusive situations. From a young age, I was taught that women were to submit to their husbands and that women owed their husbands sex. After my abusive ex left, I had even well-meaning family members praying I would be reunited with him. Um, Because God hates divorce. Spiritual language about gender roles um, was used, weaponized against me, both in churches that I attended as well as by my abuser, um, supported by church leaders, fellow Christian women friends, um, and others who taught me that the Christian response to problems in your marriage for a woman is to figure out what you're doing wrong and become a better spouse. 
And this fed into a narrative that the abuse was my fault. Um, thankfully, God has been doing a great work in my heart to heal. Um, and I wish I could talk all day and tell you about all of the ways that a tender and loving God has restored a heart that was dominated and abused. He's been so faithful and loving and kind to me, healing wounds I didn't even realize I had. Um, what a good, good God we have. And I thank him every day um, that my ex packed his bags and left suddenly because I know I would have kept choosing him over and over again, and it's, it's very uncommon for abusers to leave like that. But God said, enough of this, and I was set free, and he has walked me through every moment since. So I just want to say today, if your partner um, is controlling or coercive, belittling or degrading to you, if you are afraid of your partner, if setting a personal boundary causes your partner to respond with anger, rage, or manipulation, it is not your fault. There is nothing you can do to fix that. I believe in you. I believe you. And we are here to help as a church. There's hope and there is life on the other side of abuse. And so I'm so grateful for a church where we can talk about this. Um, So thank you, Joe and Alyssa, um, for making space to talk about the hard stuff Um, because this is just a part of our everyday way of doing life together, and it is so, so rare. And so I hope that you both know what a difference it's made um, for me and my family, and I know for others as well. Um, I want to turn now to introduce you to Denise, who is an expert on this topic. Denise is an advocate, educator, and trainer for domestic violence awareness and prevention. And she has worked um, in the field of domestic violence advocacy for 15 plus years. Um, I can personally attest to just how Denise shows up and just, it's like a healing balm just flows out of her in her conversations with you. And she's so gifted at what she does. And so I'm grateful for for your work, Denise, and for your the ways you're educating faith communities about best practices and protocols for assisting survivors. Will you join me in welcoming Denise up here? Whew, should have brought tissues, y'all. <laughs> Might need to cut that on. Hello. Oh, I think I turned it's it off. off. There's no power. Oh. There's no power. Okay, great. Hello. <laughs> Is it working? Great. Yeah. All right. Oh, great. Thank you so very much, Heidi. That was such a compelling story. And as you said, it's it's a very, very common story, except for the fact that the abuser left. In most cases, that's, that's simply not the case. But also, thank, um, I want to thank Heidi for uh, sharing with us God's unfailing, unwavering love and support mm-hmm. and helping to heal you spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And Jesus is the, is the great uh, healer, and that's important for us to always to always remember. I especially want to thank Pastor Joe and Pastor Alyssa for creating this space for this conversation, but I really appreciate all of you for being here today. This is not an easy topic, and thanks to you who are attending the service and those of you who are listening at home for your willingness to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
in churches, domestic violence is known as the holy hush. People know it exists, but nobody wants to discuss it. So thank you for your bravery uh, to have this courageous conversation. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit, Denise, about your work at Ohio Domestic Violence Network? Yes, oh, um, the Ohio, Deve uh, Ohio Domestic Violence Network, also known as ODVN, um, is a state network of 75 programs that serve all 88 counties in Ohio. And we advocate for all advocates and all, all, excuse me, we advocate for all survivors and their children. Two of those programs are here in Franklin County, and I've provided the resources to Heidi for those. One is Choices, which offers services in addition to emergency shelter, and the other is the Center for Family Safety and Healing. That's a non-residential facility. But all of the programs throughout the state uh, have services such as a 24-hour confidential crisis hotline. Uh, they also have advocates on staff to help the survivor work out a safety plan. They uh, have legal advocacy. They often can assist with, with uh, legal bills. They also have programs for counseling, support groups, children's programs, offer relocation assistance, um, all, for emergency shelter or transitional housing as well. And the great news is that most of these services are free mm -hmm. and you That's don't nice. have to stay at the shelter That's to nice. access the, the services, right? Awesome. Denise, can you talk to us a little bit about what domestic violence is, how big or bad of a problem it is? Um, you know, I think I was really surprised when I started reading about this, how pervasive it was. Um, so can you share with us just a little bit of the background? Well, you described it very well. <laughs> it, it really is a pattern. It's not an isolated incident or a one-time fight. It's a pattern of assaultive and coercive behavior that one partner uses against another partner. It's basically a power imbalance. There's one person who is always wielding power and control over another. And the goal of the abuser, and I'm gonna use the terms abuser, batterer, and perpetrator to mean the same person, and I'll also um, use the terms victim and survivor interchangeably. In our work, the term victim is not viewed as negative in the court systems, in the criminal and civil court systems, and also with law enforcement. Because domestic violence is a crime, the law is written uh, using the term victim. But in advocacy work, we like the term survivor because it's more empowering. Mm -hmm. So the goal of the abuser or the batterer or the perpetrator is really to control the thoughts, actions, and beliefs of the victim. So that over time, like you, you, you question your own judgment. You didn't know for sure what was real and what wasn't. And it also prevents you from seeking help and talking to other people. And think about it. If you can't trust your own judgment, how can you possibly keep yourself safe? Yes. <laughs> so abusers use these various tactics. So what, as you discuss emotional abuse, and actually what you went through is something called gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And if you ha have a moment, please uh, Google gaslighting. There's so many great YouTube videos about it mm -hmm. and, and, um, and the reaction to it. And in addition to that, 
uh, you mentioned financial abuse. 99% mm -hmm. of all domestic violence relationships involve financial abuse. People think because a survivor has a great job or a successful career, they can leave at any time. That is totally false. Mm -hmm. What the abuser does is control the money supply, and most um, survivors with good jobs are forced to turn over every paycheck account for every dime they spent. Uh, in my advocacy work, when I was doing direct service, I would encounter uh, people who lived in gated communities who didn't have the basic necessities for prescriptions, for groceries, for diapers for their children. Uh, they, and, and basically the abuser is saying, you know, you are so unloved, you are so unworthy, you're not even worth the basic essentials. Wow. So that is... Uh, another form of abuse. A person does not have to endure physical or sexual violence to be a victim mm -hmm. of domestic violence. Those, um, um, the emotional scarring, the um, name calling, the berating, all of that works on a person's self-esteem. It lowers their self-esteem and lowers their, their self-confidence as well. And we know that batters are very, very unpredictable. So we never know what is gonna happen. But these um, various tactics or methods of control, they all work together. And another thing that is surprising, that even when a batterer is being nice, and they're not, they're not um, harmful all the time. There are times they're nice, even fun and attentive. That's part of the manipulation. Right. Because like you, Heidi, survivors want to go back to that person. They stay because they remember the person at the beginning who was kind and loving. They, they, they think that if they just do everything right, if they follow all the rules that the batterer says, exactly. then everything will Right. We'll go back as well. So. I think that's such an important point just because I think for so long, you know, before I went through this personally, I would always be asking that question like, well, why do people stay in these situations? Understanding there are barriers, but wondering like why would it, they wouldn't at least check out emotionally? And I think that was really important for me to understand is it's not an abuser is not an abuser 100% right. of the time, right? Exactly. Like sometimes they're, you know, making you kind of feeding you along and, and helping right. you to feel loved and cherished. And so... Um, and that's how abuse works. Right. And they're also experts at making excuses. You know, if you would threaten to leave, they say, oh, I'll go to church, I'll go to AA, or whatever. And it's important, and you brought this up too, that only the abuser can stop the abuse. Mm. The survivor cannot. That, mm. that, uh, domestic violence is a decision to intentionally harm uh, a partner. It's not an excuse. Yeah. It's a choice. Yes. So, Denise, why is it important for faith communities to talk about this? I mean, you know, I think there's this sort of this idea, like, we're all good people here. That wouldn't happen to somebody in our church. Um, why is it important for us to engage conversations like this one today? Well, domestic violence is a serious social epidemic. We know that one in four women and one in seven men will experience severe physical or sexual violence at the hands of their of their partner. It's also a major public health concern. For the last 20 years, the CDC has said it's the leading cause of injury to women. It's also the number one cause of fatality for pregnant and postpartum women. Wow. So the church has always been, has been at the forefront 
of social change. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you think about it, uh, in Jesus's time, under Roman law, women and children had no rights. Uh, if you were married, uh, your husband could beat you, could starve you, could leave you on the side of the road. Uh, that was all perfectly legal. Jesus was the first person to actually show respect to women. Uh, remember the Samaritan woman mm -hmm. and how uh, what the reaction was of the, of the disciples. Why are you talking to her? You know, Samaritans were like the refuse of the world. They were like trash. And then a woman on top of it. <laughs> and yet he showed compassion. Yeah. Also, he was friends with Mary and Martha. He respected them mm -hmm. as well. And I think it's, it's pretty amazing that the greatest miracle in the history of civilization, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was revealed first to women, mm -hmm. not to men. Mm -hmm. yeah, he, he didn't appear to, to the disciples. He appeared to the women mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And also, he showed great compassion and respect for his mother. I mean, he was at the cross. He was carrying on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, the most horrific suffering ever. And yet, he said to John, Behold your mother. Mm -hmm. He was concerned and worried about his mother mm -hmm. as well. So Jesus has always been an agent for social change. We also know that in the early church, I was listening to a podcast recently, and they said in 87 AD, there's some documentation in a city outside of Rome that Christ, the Christian church fed 1,500 people a day. So the church was the original Meals on Wheels without the wheels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. So, so I think it is very important. And also, um, the studies show that a person of faith will come to the church first to disclose. They mm. will not disclose to family members or coworkers, but if they belong to a church community, they will usually come, yeah. come to the church. And what's happened is, uh, like you, many times survivors are met with this wall of disbelief and silence and shame. How can that be? He's the youth pastor, and mm -hmm. my child is thriving with his programs. Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, you must be lying. Right. And, and keep in mind that abusers thrive. Abuse thrives because abusers are skillful manipulators. Right. They're highly, highly likable. And for some reason in our society, we believe that if someone is likable, they're also trustworthy. Mm. Yes. And that's uh, certainly an, another factor as well, too. Yeah. So I, I think the church is, is, the, is the perfect place. But what has happened, uh, too, like you, uh, Biblical teaching and scripture is twisted, and this is not just in the Christian community, this is also among all the faiths, too. And so an abuser, I, I know one um, survivor that I work with, uh, she was beaten every Sunday after church, and as she lay on the floor with uh, bruised ribs and a bloody face, uh, the abuser would pull out the Bible and say, look, it says here you have to forgive me. Hmm. So, so that twisting of the faith, that misuse of scripture is, is what really uh, prevents uh, survivors. And also, um, it's, many times too, we find that it's the, the survivor that brings their partner into the church, but then the partner likes to, cl likes to claim the church as well, and then the survivor will not come because the partner's there, and, and mm -hmm. we have that situation. And well-meaning but uninformed people like your, like your friends in church will often give character, 
character witnesses, give testimony. I've seen mm. this over and over again, where people in church will testify as to the character of the abuser, and then he ends up, or she, because um, men are also survivors, that person ends up, the abuser, the perpetrator, ends up getting not shared custody, but full custody of the children. Mm. You've talked a little bit about this already, Denise, but I wondered if you could share about what you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about domestic violence. Um, I know I've encountered quite a few along the way and wondered which ones you see kind of most often in your work. Well, the one um, that I alluded to is not all survivors are women. We know that most men do not abuse, but most abusers are male, about 85 to 90 percent. But males are also survivors, and it's very difficult for, because of the way our society is structured, uh, with the messages that men get, they're told to man up. Um, you know, how, how could she be, you know, I, I've, I've worked with survivors that said, um, you know, my, my uh, wife, who's a kindergarten teacher, would take cast iron still skillets and beat me across, you know, and, and this guy is like a 250-pound 200, security officer, but he wouldn't touch her. And, he, and they tend to stay, too, male survivors, often because of the children. Mm. And one of them told me, you know, I could take the beatings, I could take the, um, you know, the berating, you're not a man, why don't you fight back? He said, but when my kids started saying what, what the abuser said, daddy's stupid, daddy's an idiot, daddy can't do anything right. He said, that's when I knew mm. I had to make a change. Mm. So that is one misconception. And also the programs in Ohio will take uh, male survivors as well. Mm. Yeah, another a real challenge is that uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community also face domestic violence as this, at the same rate as those in heterosexual relationships, but they face many more barriers. Um, I've also worked with, um, with survivors um, who are gay who have told me my partner, uh, my partner threatened to out me to my family. Now, we know that gay marriage is legal in all 50 states, but not everybody wants to disclose it to their employer or their family. And he had endured horrific, horrific beatings. And he said, my grandmother is Southern Baptist and deeply religious, and if she know, it would, it would kill her. And so we, we see that those are a few of the misconceptions. Yeah. Also, anyone can be an abuser. They come from all socioeconomic backgrounds, mm -hmm. all ethnicities, races, gender and sexual identifications. They're community leaders, they're doctors, they're attorneys, they're bankers, um, they're students, they're unemployed, and anyone can, can be an abuser. And how does, how does um, what you see outside of the church compare to inside? Is it pretty similar? Are there differences between the rates and kinds of abuses that you see? Um, actually, no, the rates are the same. But what I see is more resistance in the church. When survivors come to the church, they're not getting the, the resistance. And mm. so much of it is that attitude, stay, pray, and obey. And we all know that praying is a tremendous source of strength. But it will not change the abuse. It will not stop. And so that is a very dangerous message. Another misconception is, especially in the church, oh, try couples counseling or marriage enrichment classes. Very dangerous. The worst thing that can happen because the, the couple, while, while um, 
the victim may be disclosing something, they think about this, they have to go back with the abuser. So that simply does not work and right. should not be recommended. Right. Um, can you talk, Denise, a little bit about, um, you touched on this briefly, but about the gendered aspects of inter intimate partner violence in particular, I find um, it seems like the focus in conversations we often hear is often around like battered women or around the victims, and we don't often talk about perpetrators. Um, I also wonder about like an abuser's ability to reform. Is that do we need to shift the conversation? Is it centered appropriately? And what do you have, what are your thoughts on the gendered aspects of this? Well, the um, the vast majority of research that we have, the social science research that's been done, is on. Uh, victims and survivors because they're the ones who have disclosed and they're the ones who have sought healing. And abuse, uh, abusers really um, kind of thrive under the radar. And so if they're not going to disclose and if they are out of an abusive relationship, have no desire to change, most likely they'll go on to another one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, be because um, abuse is a learned behavior, um, re it's really important that abusers if they seek help, is they, they go to a program known as a batter intervention program. This is probably the only program that, that has consistently worked. But what they do, it's a very intense program. It sometimes takes years. It's a lifetime commitment. And it, what it does, it unpacks those attitudes, those beliefs, those values that they were taught about, about women. Mm. I know with um, one, um, a, f a few um, abusers that I worked with, uh, they told me when I was growing up, my mother's boyfriend used to beat her or my stepdad used to beat my mom and I vowed I would never ever hurt a woman. But as um, the, the one person was disclosing to me, he said, no, he said, I was just getting tired of my wife nagging me to clean out the basement. And she kept nagging me and nagging me. So I got mad and I just took my fist and punched her. He said, and now every time she sees my fist, she'll do whatever. I, I just raise my fist and she'll do whatever I want. So a person can grow up in a family that, um, that has, shows respect for women, but also uh, Sometimes with peers, too, their friends will say, well, why do you let her talk back to you that way? Or, or why are you putting up with that? You, you're the man. You're in charge. You should let her know who's boss. Mm -hmm. So that's a, But the batter intervention programs are really the best, and we do have several in Ohio. Now, one thing that does not work is anger management. <laughs> and sadly, many judges uh, and magistrates in the country will... will court order abusers to take anger management classes. Anger is an emotional problem. Battering is a behavioral problem. And batters are not out of control. Think about this. Do they get into fights with their coworkers? Do they lash out and harm their friends? No, it, it, once again, it, it, they are, they're very much in control. Mm. And so that is another uh, misconception yeah. that we deal with. Another I wanted to share with you too, uh, many times, and like you, you believed a lot of the excuses that you were told. Mm -hmm. And uh, many times um, abusers will say, you know, I have an alcohol problem, I have an addiction mm -hmm. problem, whatever. Alcohol and addictions, and uh, alcohol and addictions are very different problems from abuse. And recovery from addictions and recovery from abuse require two separate solutions. Mm -hmm.
Now, we know that alcohol and addictive behavior intensify violence, but it does not cause it. Millions of people struggle with addictions, and they don't harm their partner. Yeah. Other excuses are, well, I had a bad childhood, Mm -hmm. or um, I'm depressed. Yeah, mental Um, illness comes into it so often as well. It does, and I also have a a background as a mental health first aid instructor, and what I've learned in my training is less than 2% of all abusers have a diagnosable mental health disorder. In most cases, people with mental health disorders, statistics show, tend to be the victims rather than the perpetrators. Mm. Wow. What, um, we're a community that likes to take action, Denise. (laughs) What are some things um, that we can do to help? What are signs to look for? What should we do if we notice a sign? How can we make our church a supportive place for survivors? Um, And maybe what even would you say to, if there's a survivor here today, um, what would you want to leave them with? Well, I'm very impressed by your service and the commitment to social action and social justice and helping those um, with marginalized groups and and underrepresented populations. And I think that you you are in an absolutely great environment for this. Uh, It's really, really, um, it's a lot, there's a lot of seeds to plant and a lot of ripe fruit uh, to bear in in this church. I think the first thing I would do is to try and set aside our judges, our judgments, our biases of how we think a survivor should behave, how we think an abuser should behave. It's so easy looking on the outside to say, I can't believe you're, you know, you went back seven times. The actual, uh, the, uh, the average is eight or nine times that a victim leaves and returns to an abuser. And there are so many reasons that we talked about, you know, financial, emotional, mm-hmm. and all of those as well. So I think, um, I think just recognizing that we all have implicit bias and recognizing that we are not here to tell that person what to do. Uh, another factor in, in helping survivors is think about this. They've been told what to do. They've had someone controlling them the entire time. And if you come in and say, yes, you should do this, this, and this, they will probably zone out and tune you out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think, first of all, um, acknowledge our own bias and tell them, as you said over and over again, abuse is not your fault. And I think it was amazing that your spiritual mentor, I mean, it was the person in the church, and we all can be that person Mm -hmm. who helped Heidi, who was in the church, her spiritual mentor that said, haven't you had enough? This this is abuse. And we can can definitely be that person. So listening without judgment. Mm -hmm. And remember, too, that the survivor is the expert on their life. Yes. It's very easy for us to say, well, you need to leave, you should do this, and do this and 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 they know they know the batter better than anyone and so trust in their judgment mm-hmm. and trust is a key we we talked about trust in our hymns this morning as well too trust they survivors have great difficulty trusting everyone think about it the person that that promised to love and cherish and be with them you know ha, has um definitely malign that trust. And then friends and family also have done that too by supporting the abuser. Mm-hmm. So they have tremendous issues with trust. So be a person that someone can trust. And also share resources. And uh, we have several resources on the back of the program today which are included. Um, those There are national resources, state and local as well. 
That is really, really important is to connect the person with the, with the resources. Um, and let's see, in addition to that, oh, a fund. I was talking to Pastor Joe about possibly um, the church creating an emergency fund for survivors. So if you'd like to donate gift cards for gasoline for stores that um, carry clothing and um, groceries, that would be very helpful. And let them know that hope and healing is possible and you are here with them. And please do not, do not confide in other people. Do not can ever confront the abuser. That is a sign for um, increased risk of injury, escalation, and even death. We know three to four people die every day from domestic violence. Um, Ohio Domestic Violence Network, last week we released our annual fatality data, and it was alarming. We had over um, 130 deaths. Uh, 28 of them were children. And uh, it, was, it was the highest, it was a 20% increase over last year. Mm. And so uh, we know that leaving, in fact, within the first two weeks of leaving an abuser, a survivor is seven times more likely to be killed. Mm. So e abusers have this like uncanny ability um, to read survivors. And so any, um, any phase of separation, even if the survivor's thinking about it or trying to put money aside or whatever, any kind of shift in movement, attitude, thoughts, abusers can pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So um, any form of separation, any phase of separation is, mm -hmm. is dangerous. Mm. And so I would definitely advise them to do that. And that the church will always, always be here for them yeah. as well. Thank you. Any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? I'm so thankful for all of this. This is all such great information that I, I feel like I wish I had, you know, growing up in the church, and I hope that we can continue talking about this. Any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before? Well, we... I, I am just so pleased to be here and, and be with all of you, and thank you, for, thank you for listening. Thank you, as I said, for your willingness to be uncomfortable. And you truly are agents of social change, just like the early Christian church is. And domestic violence, there's not a, pre, there's not a um, genetic predisposition for it. This is something we can eradicate because if we don't, it affects generations and generations. And it also affects all uh, segments of our society. It affects um, education when children uh, become truant, they're dealing with trauma. It affects their ability to learn. It affects the economy when survivors can't get jobs because they're also enduring, enduring trauma as well as in addition to the physical injury. Domestic violence is a greater health risk than obesity. I think heart disease and smoking combined. It affects um, the legal system. We're, we're just so many backlogged of domestic violence cases in both the civil and the uh, criminal court systems. Mm. So it, it really Im impacts everyone. Yeah. I think there is um, a verse that has always helped me that I like to share with survivors that is uh, Jeremiah 21, uh, 29, 11. Mm -hmm. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, mm -hmm. plans to give you hope and a future. Thank you. Will you join me in thanking Denise?
if you need resources, um, please do feel free to stop by, um, chat with Alyssa or visit. Um, we've got a few resources in there. If you know somebody that you're worried about or somebody that you think might be suffering with this, it's a great way to get some more information and know how to better support them. We're going to transition to a time of just reflection and liturgy. Um, so take it away, Joe. 